Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Trang Le. Trang is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, and she recently published a preprint uh, titled Statistical Inference Relief Feature Selection. Trang, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Trang, let's start with your uh, scientific journey. So back in 2010, I um, came to the University of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to study geology and math. Um, and as an undergrad, I took a networks theory course um, and then got sucked into all these neat linear algebra tricks of eigenvalues and eigenvectors, uh, you know, to compute the different network characteristics. And um, the professor of this course, Brett McKinney, is, um, who's actually a theoretical physicist by training, but uh, he's done a great deal of research in bioinformatics. And so after several small bioinformatics projects with Brett, it was a natural transition for me to move into this field. Um, Brett later became my PhD advisor and mentor and also running partner. And I should mention that uh, Brett's the PI of this STIR study as well. And uh, so after, I guess, about six years, I obtained my PhD in mathematics. And I had just moved to uh, the University of Pennsylvania this year to uh, begin my postdoc study. Cool. And uh, what, what did you do in your PhD and what are your plans for the postdoc? Right. So during my PhD years, I studied um, the overlapping between differential privacy and um, generalization in machine learning, actually. So with what people have done with differential privacy is to use it as a um, definition to um, sort of uh, protect uh, individuals' privacy in, you know, these large data sets. Um, but what I do is I take that concept into machine learning and trying to protect the privacy of each individ individual single data point um, to prevent overfitting um, of machine learning methods. So uh, that's what my PhD thesis was on. Interesting. So, so that's not uh, that doesn't sound like anything sort of bioinformatics related. So I'm curious how you got to <laughs> to write about you know differential gene expression, which I think only superficially relates to differential privacy. Right. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, differential privacy was a big part of it, but um, I, I wanted to apply it to machine learning, and so uh, during my time, you know, doing all this research in machine learning, I uh, stumble upon a lot of uh, machine learning algorithms like relief and, uh, of course, random forest, uh, gradient boosting, all of that. And actually, in my thesis, I, I compared, uh, you know, the performance of different feature selection and uh, classification methods uh, incorporated into differential privacy. And so, and um, the application that I used uh, was on neuroimaging data, and also gene expression data. And that's how, how all they all kind of tied together. And for your postdoc, uh, will you continue just working in general machine learning, or uh, are you moving to biology? I'm going to stay primarily in machine learning, but uh, obviously my focus is on uh, biological application. And uh, right now I'm moving a little bit toward uh, automated machine learning, uh, particularly teapot. It's a tree-based, a tree-based pipeline optimization uh, algorithm that uh, helps scientists to um, not having to go through all these tests of, you know, which classifiers, which feature selectors, which transformers I have to use on these data. So it helps automate that process and uh, eventually give you a pipeline of, um, Okay, you're gonna use these features. You're gonna use these transformers, and then you're gonna use this, you know, say relief or I'm sorry, um, random forest uh, classifier, and that would give you the best cross-validated accuracy on your training set, for example. And so, it, I'm trying to help with that automation process. Very cool. Our today's discussion will be uh, focused on your paper about. Uh, something called STIR, that's your uh, statistical inference relief uh, algorithm. Yes. And uh, and the context 
is feature selection, which could be applied to genome-wide association studies, could be applied to differential uh, gene expression studies. And uh, the need for it, I guess, is driven by something called epistasis in, in, in the context of GWAS. So maybe let's, let's introduce this. What, what is epistasis? Epistasis is uh, essentially an interaction structure of genes that affect a, a phenotype or a biological outcome. And that's to my understanding. And um, the, the idea of epistasis has been used most often in the context of, of GWAS, the genome-wide association studies, to find polymorphisms, the SNPs, who are interacting with each other and also affecting a biological outcome. Um, but in this particular paper and what I've been using, epistasis is applying it to gene expression data. Right. So, so um, maybe one way to explain epistasis is that when we look at um, the same uh, locus on two different chromosomes, then we have uh, potentially two different alleles. And the way these alleles combine, it could be additive. So they their effects of each allele, uh, they're just added. Or there could be non-additive interaction, which is, for example, dominance when one allele suppresses the other one, right? Um, so, and and the way I understand epistasis is is the same, but with uh, multiple loci. So when one locus can act as sort of dominant uh, or recessive in relation to another locus. Yes, that's that's the, exactly the traditional way to think about it. In in the context of of gene expression, it's um, and I'm going to do this very roughly because I'm not a biologist, but um, essentially, you know, if one gene is downregulating another gene and somehow this downregulation affect um, the the outcome as in, you know, whether you're sick or not sick with a particular disease, then uh, we want to be able to find that downregulation in, um, in the final pipeline. Yeah. And... Uh... The models that are usually used for uh, GWAS or for differential gene expression, right, they typically don't do anything to account or correct for these interactions. So if we're talking about GWAS, then we could use, uh, for instance, linear models to, uh, to model the effects of uh, different uh, loci. And, and we had a podcast episode about that. And uh, if you wanted to account for epistasis, what would you do? You would uh, want, presumably, to include your um, interaction effects in your linear model. So you would have main effects for each variable locus, and you might also include the effect of two loci interacting. But uh, the problem with that is that leads to an explosion in the number of tests that you that you will be performing that's exactly correct yeah and so what what is uh, what is your solution to that problem right that's exactly our motivation not having to explicitly write down you know those interaction terms because in the case of say gene expression you have thousands of genes then you would have you know a combination of well, how many times you can choose two of those genes out of these thousands um, to write down all those interaction terms. And then, like you said, it would become an explosion of uh, tests. And so this is where relief comes in. In general, right, we need some way to select our feature. So I suppose that's where um, the feature selection algorithms come in. And uh, so relief is one of those algorithms, right? Right. Yeah. So in, in like you said, linear model is one of among others, feature selection methods that assume this independence um, among the variables. Other methods include information gain or the Gini index. But to be able to find these interactions uh, without explicitly writing out these terms, um, we want to find a feature selection algorithm that consider the relationships between the variables. And also, we need to do so in a computationally efficient manner. So... Um, and relief right. is one of those. Yeah. Right. So, so the idea is that uh, let let's say we have thousand uh, covariates. So, like in in a gene in in a differential gene expression study, uh, let's say we have a thousand genes or or uh, 
more like 20,000 genes, but let, let's yeah. say, let's say it's just a thousand genes. And, um, uh, that, that would be a thousand main effects, right? And then if we wanted right. to include all the interaction terms, there'll be like a uh, half a million more uh, terms, Correct. which is just too many. Um, so the idea is that we use this feature selection algorithm to rank all the interaction effects and say, okay, out of this half million, we'll select maybe another thousand interaction terms and, and include them in the model. Correct. Here's, here's what I'm interested in. Like then uh, typically once you include these interaction effects into your model, um, you would usually compute some p values, right? You'd apply like multiple testing correction. But if your p values come from a features, if, if your features come from feature selection algorithms, wouldn't that confound the, um, multiple testing correction? Because you're, sort of pre-selecting them, right? So your p-values would be artificially low just because you selected the low p-values in the first place or, or uh, selected these very salient interaction effects, but uh, they would be no longer sort of random and, uh, you know, independent. That's exactly right. And yeah, um, that's sort of like the double-dipping issue with, with our data. If we pre-select these features and then we want to, say, apply it um or find the p-value again um, on the same set of data, then we would have a very optimistic view of our p-value right now. It's very low because we have pre-selected them. And so what, um, and I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, statistical inference and then machine learning because um, each uh, field, I guess, almost have, their own objective toward, you know, do we, do, do I look at the p-value or do we want to create a model that, um, give me a very high accuracy at the end? Uh, but to be safe and to make reviewers happy, I would say, you know, if you, uh, really need to come up with some sort of model to provide the accuracy, then, um, choose a different data set, an independent data set to, to, to build your model. Um, but I would like to also add that uh, the five or half a million interaction terms that um, you were talking about, um, that only consider two-way interaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, if we go to higher order interaction, it's going to become even uh, more uh, right. complicated. Yeah. So is, is that how it's called, double dipping? Uh, this is the first time I hear about it, but uh, it's, oh, really? I, I like this name. <laughs> um, I think that's a, that's a casual term to, to call it. Um, people have called it p-hacking. Yeah, so I, I try to avoid you know using my, my label twice. Although some people have different idea and they say, well, I already have this significantly associated with phenotype features, then... Why, why can't I use them to build my model? I just need a model out of this. I, I think if you just need a model, it's fine. But if you claim that your model has a particularly high uh, accuracy in classifying individuals, um, then I think you need to test, definitely test your model on a different data set. Right. Or, or if you claim some causal interactions, right? And not just uh, predictive right. efficiency. Exactly. And of course, your work is cool in that it allows to compute p-values inside the same process right as uh, as feature selection so the those are not two different processes that that's just a single algorithm and so that should avoid that issue perhaps but but we'll we'll get we'll get to that um but i think it's a, it's a good time to introduce relief in general like what is it what problem does it solve oh i guess we already know what problem it solves right but how does it solve that problem sure um so relief is a family of machine learning algorithms that select uh, features or um, i think in the original algorithm they call it these attributes um who that associated with the the um your outcome of interest um, and by using nearest neighbors, it's um, able to find the association that may be due to only not only individual effects, uh, but also epistasis or statistical interactions uh, with other features. So, you know, it takes into account the relationship between these attributes. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe we should also explain, like, if people are not familiar with this term feature, but that basically means, yeah, like one of the attributes or, or covariates. So for GWAS, that would be uh, an allele in a certain locus. And for differential gene expression, that would be expression, expression level, level of a certain yeah. gene. Yeah. That's, yes, that's exactly right. And so we want to select those features. So either uh, genes or loci that are responsible for the certain phenotype that we're observing. That's correct. And by nearest neighbors, I mean, this is among the sample space. And so if your gene expression level is very similar to, say, your parent, one of your parents, uh, then that person would be your nearest neighbor. In a way, in finding the neighborhood of a particular sample, it takes into account all the attributes, all the features, and not just one, even though in the algorithm itself, the feature score updates is uh, only one at a time. Because you're comparing your feature with your neighbor, it, it, it does this in a, you know, in a very high dimensional way, not just one at a time, like most people think. So maybe we should just explain how the algorithm works, because it's I don't think it's that complicated as is it may sound. Yeah, sorry if I made it sound complicated, but yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not complicated at all. Um, so basically, like I said before, you're going to find neighbors of each sample or, or observation or in the original algorithm, they call it instance, but uh, let's just call them sample for now. Let's concentrate on one. Uh, do you want to pick GWAS or, or differential gene expression, which is closer to you? Let's let's do uh, let's do gene expression if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do gene expression. So so we have a certain number of samples, right? And uh, right. So we have a certain number of samples, and this let's just consider two genes for now. And so if you imagine you have two genes, uh, one in the x-axis and one in the y-axis, and these samples are you know in the two-dimensional space, then uh, pick a particular sample, unify its neighbors, and then um, a hit is one that has the same label as your sample, and a miss is a neighbor who has a different label than your sample. Yeah, and, and the label is just the phenotype. So if you consider right. like maybe healthy and, and sick patients, That's correct. Right? For, for instance, right. you would label each point in this two-dimensional plane as healthy or sick. And so if, if you look across the axis, if, if you just compute the x-axis difference between your sample and a miss in a sample and the hit, then um, the algorithm update the score by of that gene x by adding the difference in that gene x attribute with between your sample and a miss, and then subtracting that difference between your sample and the hit. Um, and the reason for that is because you want to add um, the difference between your sample and the miss because that gene acts is meaningful in that sense. It, it's meaningful in differentiating the label of your sample compared to a miss. However, if um, there's a lot of difference between um, that gene, that gene X expression between the sample and a hit, then it's not that meaningful. So you want to subtract that. Right. So the idea is that we want uh, so the good attributes so for example the good genes would be very close so the difference would be small for samples in the same category so let's say okay. for health, healthy samples it should be very close uh, among all healthy samples and it should be very close among all sick samples That's but when right. you compare healthy uh, samples with sick samples the difference should ideally be large, and that that would mean that this gene is meaningful in this in in this study. That's yes, that's a perfect description of, of relief. Yes. Yeah, and and then you basically go through all the genes, you go through all the samples, and for each sample, you consider either the closest neighbor or several closest neighbors, right? And and at every point, you update the weight of the gene using this procedure. That's correct. Yes, and the number of neighbors um, is also one active field in relief. People are trying to find what is the best um, number of neighbors to be able to, 
to detect um, these interactions. And so simulation studies have been done to to find this. Originally, it has uh, the default is cake was ten. So you use ten nearest neighbors, no matter what your sample size is, which is uh, very arbitrary. But uh, recent papers have shown, like, have shown that you know perhaps you you can find an uh, adaptive radius uh, for each of your samples so that the score updating is more meaningful. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, the very original relief it was even one. What wasn't it? That's like, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So they considered just one nearest neighbor, and then people thought, well, why why just one? Why why not? take multiple and that would sort of perhaps lead to more uh, robust estimates when you average over several ones? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And um, that the interesting uh, part is that if you increase the neighbor radius to be um, it's infinity, for example, which means you're including all the samples, then the result is very similar to a t-test. So you, um, in a way, you're increasing the, your ability of the ability of relief to detect the main effect um, when you increase the radius. So there's that trade-off that we have to right, think about. Right. But yeah. 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 And on the other hand, if you consider just a few nearest neighbors, then you boost the effect of these interactions that we're interested right. in. Right. Yes. So relief has been around for a while, right? It's a rather old algorithm. And uh you don't hear about it all the time, like all those people competing on Kaggle. They don't use relief that that much. So, uh, <laughs> do, do you think it didn't catch on? Yeah, and I'm not sure why. Particularly, I'm hoping with more automation, by which I mean, you know, these these adaptive radius that people are trying to come up with. Uh, you don't have to do a lot more uh, testing around, see how many neighbors you have to do. Uh, you have to used to for for this algorithm to work and yeah it's it's interesting because in a way um, and i think in 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 the biological field especially um because we have so much noise that i think algorithms like relief is really helpful but perhaps those data is on kaggle it's not as uh, perhaps compositionally expensive or my understanding is that, you know, with GWAS and genetic session studies, that there's just so much noise out there. and There's only a very few uh, signals, um, if you might, then relief becomes uh, very effective. Uh, and there have been study on, you know, comparing relief with other algorithms. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure why. I, I'm hoping that with you know these, and I'm gonna gonna throw it out there. Is the the name is multi-surf is one way that you use to uh, find the number of nearest neighbors, and uh, so I think I'm hoping that with multi-surf coming out and and more automation and and stir, uh, people will be able to use it more, and hopefully that would <laughs> catch up at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so sometimes it's just fashion, right? It's just not mm-hmm. fashionable. Like deep learning is fashionable, obviously, or uh, you know, this random boosted trees are fashionable. And if mm-hmm. if someone just comes into the field and sees that, you know, this relief has been around for a while and no one uses it, then maybe it's just not that good. But I think it's a very like nice algorithm. It's, it's very easy to understand. It's uh, almost obvious in retrospect, although, you know, there are many of these things that once you learn about it, is this all? Is this it? Right. This is like very <laughs> trivial, but right. it's effective at what it does and uh, very easy to understand, which is, I think, very cool. Thank you. Oh, oh and another thing that I'd like to add is that it's, it's, a, it's still a feature selection method, so it doesn't have a model. It doesn't give you an accuracy in a way. And so oftentimes you have to incorporate it with something, like you said, great boosting uh, to give it a score, like, you know, how good did the algorithm perform? And so uh, it's hard to judge whether the feature selection methods work if you don't have, you know, an underlying uh, structure of your data known by which I mean with simulation study. And so these data that people use on Kaggle and stuff, they, it's more perhaps some team tried to use some feature selection method. And I think most people do now um, and transform the data set. They don't really show that in the beginning, but then at the end, you know, oh, this is 
you know, we eventually use ActionBoost <laughs> um, to 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 get this accuracy. So yeah, the, uh, this is a very good point. I think that uh, in machine learning, as we discussed earlier, you care about just predictive accuracy. So right. if you if your algorithm can cope with that, you'll just throw all the features into it, and then if the algorithm is good, then extra features, even if they are mostly noise, they they won't hurt, and you just uh, apply some regularization or cross validation to to avoid overfitting but like with a good algorithm extra features don't hurt on the other hand in statistics again as we discussed you have this double double dip problem <laughs> I, I like it so much um, where uh, it's hard to apply feature selection and then a model because then then the p-values will be confounded so it it looks like even though the algorithm itself is cool, it's like both of these areas like almost don't don't want it for these two different reasons. That's, yeah, that's that's exactly correct. And I think that's a very interesting um, nuance between machine learning and, and um, statistics itself, even though they really coming together nowadays. So one thing we could compare relief. Uh, is for example random forests. Although random forest is not just feature selection, it can be actually used to perform regression or uh, classification, but it could also be used to select the features. Okay. So uh, maybe if if you could briefly introduce a random forest and then uh, compare them with relief. Sure. Yeah. So I do uh, know that random forest is one of the most popular methods for classification, like as you mentioned, and also feature importance ranking. Um, and they use, um, I think the original algorithm uses the Gini index um, to, to rank the features. Um, nowadays, people also use permutation. And it's I, I love random forest. It's a very nice uh, algorithm. And I love the out-of-bag uh, sort of along the way computed accuracy. But what we have found is that when we have only a few features that are interacting with each other and there are so many background variables if, or, you know, noise, <laughs> if you may, uh, then the random forest has a harder time to find these these interactions. And it once again depends on uh, the number of features that... I'm, Trying to think in R is the uh, M dry <laughs> parameter, uh, the the number of features that you allow random forest to choose as a node at each time in in its decision tree. So it, we have found that it has limited power to detect Jinji interaction in high dimensional data, especially when there are not that many signals. But do do you have a sense why? So, so as I mentioned, it depends on the number of variables that it's selected for each node. And so the, I, I think the default is a square root of n or a square root of number of features in total. So if you have a hundred features in your data set, then random forest at each time in deciding which node it would select 10, it would try to, you know, select 10 random features among, you know, a hundred of these, and then um, it tries to find the best one out of those 10, which is the core of random forest. That's where the randomness comes from, and it really helps with reducing the variance among all the trees. But at the same time, uh, because these 10 features are, are randomly selected from the original 100, you know, among the 90, maybe if, if your signal is among the leftover 90, it's, it's hard to to get these features out and maybe on, you know, on, only in one of these a hundred trees that random forest is building that the, the signal is, is there in, in the node. And of course you can increase the number of uh, the, this square root of n to say n over two or even all of the features, but then that would decrease the ability of, of random forest to de detect the ones. So it, it, Basically, what a random forest is doing is averaging all these decision trees that it's making. But if you increase this number to uh, all the features to n, then all the trees are going to look very similar to each other, and it sort of lose that ability of of averaging, of you know, decreasing the variance um, amongst these models. So, 
That's interesting. And I have a somewhat related observation. So it seems to me that for a relief, it's actually not that good that, you know, in order to locate the nearest neighbors, you're using all of the features. I think it would actually, it might benefit from like randomly selecting subsets of features. And and here's why. So in a uh, many dimension, in a highly dimensional space, we know that the distances, right, they mostly become the same. <laughs> like it's, it's very mm-hmm. hard to, to distinguish close neighbors from far neighbors in a, a many dimensional space because you sort of average over or, or you sum over many coordinates mm-hmm. and, uh, and everything sort of blends together. And especially in uh, differential gene expression where uh, the number of samples is typically very small. Like you could have 10 samples, let's say, in each condition and compare them to, you know, 20,000 genes that you're right. considering. So uh, wouldn't it be better if instead of considering the full 20,000 dimensional space, you would maybe add like a third loop? So the relief algorithm already has two nested loops, one over uh, samples, another over attributes. Then uh, what if you added a third loop which when you figure out which are the nearest neighbors, you look at them not over all the dimensions, but maybe some subsets of dimensions to cure that curse of dimensionality. That's exactly. um, And I I just learned about this recently also. Um, There is actually one group who's doing this. I don't remember exactly quite where. I want to say Princeton, but they actually are building algorithms that finding neighbors based on a randomly selected subset of all the features. And uh, I think people are still experimenting with this. I think it's a great idea. Um, And especially in, you know, when you have a lot of features and you want to reduce your computing time, then this would help a whole lot. And in a way, like you said, it would, um, you, you wouldn't have to consider all 20,000 features, but only a subset of that. And perhaps that would be more robust, um, especially with the small sample size that we often observe in mathematics in general. So no, that's, that's a really great valid idea. Um, and some groups are experimenting with it. Cool. Cause, uh, yeah, I, I saw a lot of variations because the core algorithm is so simple, right? There are so many different variations. Let's, let's vary this parameter that like, let's compute this adaptive number of neighbors. Uh, there are all sorts of generalization, but I was surprised when I, you know, I, I never saw, uh, this obvious problem that in a highly dimensional space, nearest neighbors maybe don't work as well. Okay, are are there any other generalizations or variations uh, besides your own that we should talk about? Ooh, um, (laughs) I feel like there are, like you said, there are many, you know, people have tried this um, relief. Of course, there's all the versions from relief A to relief F. And relief F is what uh, people use most often, uh, just because it's, I think at the time was the most generalized it was applied to missing data. Or, okay, I'm not I'm not sure about missing data, but it was applied for a different type of endpoint, different t- kind of uh, variables um, or or features. And then there's uh, relieve uh, seek. It it's also it's also adaptively choose the number of uh, neighbors. Uh, so yeah, surf turf. Uh, most of it's actually from <laughs> and yeah. And then, of course, there's multi-serve, which is uh, the the primary uh, algorithm that we apply in in STIR is uh, to uh, select the you know the, the just different ways to select the number of features. Uh, I, I'm sorry, the number of nearest neighbors uh, for each sample. And there's um, a version of iterative relief as well, um, in which people you know find the best features and then they take. They cut off the last 10 or so, and then they do it again with only those features. And then they iteratively do that until they get to a number of features that they like to keep in their final algorithm. Okay, should we talk about multi-surfer for a little bit? What's the core idea there? 
Sure. Um, so the idea here is actually also very simple. You compute the difference between a particular sample, I'm sorry, the distance between a particular samples to all its neighbors and actually all the other data points, all the other art samples, and then you average um, these distances and take that average and and then you subtract. Okay, let's just let's stick to the simple for now. So you take the average of the distances from one particular sample to all the other data points and then that would be the threshold at which every every other samples that are less than that distance away is considered a neighbor. And so that's that's the idea of multi-surf. Now it has an additional parameter in there that the threshold is actually not just the average, but the average subtracted by the standard deviation of all the distances. So a slight different than just the average, but that's the core idea. So each sample will have a... Um, uh, unique radius that, yeah. And so K is not just 10, but it varies. Right, right. So it's, instead of fixing the, uh, uh, the number of neighbors, you're, you're fixing the, the radius and consider everyone within that radius is your neighbor. Right. And what people have found uh, with their simulation studies is that uh, Multiserve was able to identify, um, it, it's probably the most flexible method among all of these, you know, surf and turf and uh, uh, even surf star and this multi-surf star as well, uh, in the sense that it's able to detect um, many effects along with uh, two-way interaction effects, three-way interaction effects, and uh, even higher order. Uh, now, of course, each algorithm has its own advantages. So for example, multi-surf star can detect two-way interaction really well, but it just lost in, in the main effect. And so um, I think multi-surf is a, is a good intermediate you know, algorithm that we're able to detect most of the things that we have seen in simulated data. Yeah. And, and then uh, how do you actually detect interactions using relief? Do you have to explicitly consider all the pairs and all the triples consider them as attributes or uh, or how do you do that so um it's sort of automatic so in when we compute the neighbors uh oh, sorry when we compute the distance matrix that's when the interaction is taken into account. So we don't really specify that, okay, if I'm a two-way interaction or if I'm a three-way interaction, we don't know that. We, we built that in our simulated data, but we don't have to tell Relief to do that. It's sort of automatically doing that by computing the distance matrix. That makes sense. I see how that would, um, you know, these interactions would affect the score of a feature like uh, of a gene, right? So the uh, genes that interact with other genes might get a maybe higher score. And let's say you use this course to select your features, you select top 100 genes, but that doesn't really tell you then which interactions to include in mm -hmm. your downstream model. You're exactly right. Um, and that is one limitation of this algorithm. Um, it just tells you that, oh, these genes somehow are interacting, uh, but we don't really know exactly, you know, which one is interacting with which and how many ways are they interacting with each other. And um, that would have to be done in a separate step when you perhaps use these features to build um, your gene co-expression network later on but yeah relief doesn't tell you that and that's that that is definitely a drawback okay so um now we're coming to your paper your preprint and uh what was the problem that you tried to tackle because there are so many variants they must cover everything right everything you you would want uh, there, there must be a variant of relief out there that covers that. But what was your specific uh, problem that you tried to solve using STIR? So with STIR, I wanted to find a not so arbitrary cutoff for the number of features that I want to keep in my in in my model in my um, subsequent models, um, and 
what what people have done so far is when they have a ranking of all these features, they choose an arbitrary cutoff. So they say, okay, I'm gonna just focus on the top a hundred features, and I'm gonna take these, I'm gonna put it in my model later, and I'm gonna you know perhaps build a network or uh, use it in a classification model later on. Um, but there's not really a way to um, find this cutoff, so it's it's arbitrary. So what I was trying to do here is to impose a a distribution, if you may, um, a pseudo p-value to to these rankings, so that I can say, okay, if you and you know I'm not a big fan of p-values, but <laughs> it is helpful. Um, so if uh, someone comes in and say, okay, I want to find uh, the features that are associated with these, uh, with my particular outcome, and I want my p-value to be 0.05, then, you know, with STIR, you can compute a p-value for these features, and then you can say, okay, um, all these features that have p-values less than 0.05, those are the ones that you want to include in your model later. And so, in a way, I'm trying to bridge um, you know, the machine learning side of it, which is relief with the statistical side of, you know, other algorithms such as ANOVA or like you said, um, just t-test together so that I can have a p-value for my pseudo null distribution. Right. That, that makes sense. But uh, so you, you're adding pseudo uh, like in many places. So you're hedging <laughs> against something. Uh, what exactly is the issue there? The issue here is that... Um, so if you don't mind, I can back up a little bit. And uh, what I've done in this particular STIR study is that I rewrote Relief F in a way um, so that it's no longer, it's more mathematically approachable, if you um, know what I mean. So instead of very computer science <laughs> doing the for loops, I'm rewriting it um, so that now the relief score is just a subtraction of two vectors and then I sum all of them up. But instead of using the original relief by just subtracting, I'm taking that difference and I'm dividing it by the uh, pool standard deviation. And I claim that to be my um, t-statistic. However, we have to note that um, because these scores, these differences that I'm subtracting, they are differences among the samples and so and because they neighbors there are correlations between my observations in this pseudo t distribution and that's where the pseudo comes from i'm not claiming that all these independent uh, all these samples are independent of each other because the difference are calculated between the neighbors and and so it, it would um for distribution to be truly um a distribution, then your sample has to be independent for you to apply statistics um, on them. Right. So uh, you're applying a t-test, which is based on the t-distribution, although your test statistics is not like, it probably doesn't follow the t-distribution exactly, but uh, it's like a good good enough approximation. And then you just compare these p-values with uh, p-values from a permutation test, and you show that like in practice, they're quite similar, so the the deviation probably doesn't matter too much. Exactly, and it, it is it is a complicated problem. Um, and we decided to go with, and this is, I think, most who have done is just trying to test it out and, um, you know, compare it with something that we know is correct. In this case, of uh, the permutation, and uh, you know, it's permutation is very computationally expensive, and so we prefer not to do that. Uh, but for the purpose of comparison, we wanted to see how well it performs uh, with permutation and turns out that it, it performs really well. Now, if you're worried about this independence among the samples, then uh, their methods to tackle it, we thought about subsampling, we thought about, uh, let's see, uh, perhaps, I'm trying to remember <laughs> what we did. Um, so... Oh yeah, we could we could do some variance regulation um, to you know adjust for the for this independence. But what we have seen is that just using stir multi-surf, uh, it it performs on par with with permutation. 
And so we, we stick with that. But yes, future works uh, could be done to figure out what's the optimal way to 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 compute this p-value yeah and i i like this a lot i was very impressed because this is one of those things yet another one of those things that uh seem obvious in retrospect like once you reformulate this problem as you said from once you go from the for loops into like this is a difference of of these two values right it's almost It's almost obvious to then to maybe apply a t-test because we're comparing, uh, you know, two samples. The mean, exactly. Yeah, but but I'm I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't nearly as obvious before you're shown <laughs> this uh, rearrangement of of the terms. Right. Um. And I I was pretty happy with that. Um. And yeah. So I would say the 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 reformulation really helps you know me see that oh this could be done in a different way. Uh, but also, uh, we almost, we're sort of suggesting a different way to calculate the relief F score, even though all, if you have dig into it, the supplementary materials, it's, uh, what we have computed is the, the, the score itself, or what we call this T statistic. It's very similar to the original relief, um, even though we have divided this number by, um, a pool standard deviation. It's not just the p-value, but we're also proposing a different way to calculate the, the score by dividing the, the difference. Yeah, that's that's another interesting aspect of of this work is that you divide by the standard deviation. So so just to visualize this uh, as far as it's possible in a podcast. So you you calculate all this intra-class differences and interclass differences so this miss differences and hit differences um and then you compute the variances of the distances between samples in different classes and between samples in the same classes now would it also make sense to compute different variances for um each class maybe so like you could compute just one uh, variance just consider all the differences and, and compute a single variance. Now you propose to compute two different variances, one interclass and one interclass. But then you could go further and say, well, we have two different classes, we have two different conditions. Uh, there is no reason to assume that those variances are um, the same. Uh, would it make sense to compute like maybe four uh, variances? Hmm, that's that's very interesting. I haven't thought that far yeah i i, I would think about that okay. <laughs> i wonder how i wonder how different it would you know what the difference it would make to to compute all all those variances uh, but for when when i first thought about this I'm like i need to write this up right away because <laughs> it's yeah. really cool uh, but yeah i definitely think about that thanks yeah and, and then there is the question of like generalizing to multiple classes so you tackle the problem for just just two classes but of course if we have more than two classes then maybe yeah like still a question of like how many variances you compute and and uh, and you would need to perform the sort of pairwise t-test or maybe something similar to ANOVA then uh, I think you mentioned something like that right yeah yeah so this could be extended that's you know there's a lot of works in the future will be done could be extended to multi-class uh, like you mentioned or even continuous endpoint type thing when you do mm. regression um yeah and uh so right now stir is um applied for mm. continuous variables so in this case dreaming special level and um uh binary outcome but you know to to apply this for uh gwas data we would um need to do a slight modification on the uh, diff function to incorporate in categorical variables in case of GWAS. Yeah, so there's there's work to be done, <laughs> but um, I'm excited about the result. And um, it it should not be, you know, we, we just have to do a little bit more testing and uh, spend some more time in making sure that, you know, all it, the, the algorithm doesn't break if I have a missing data point or something. So, but it's it it shouldn't it it should be rather straightforward. Um, and even to incorporate this this new way of calculation into existing um, P 
packages. Uh, for example, my my uh, one of my co-authors in here, Ryan, he uh, has on GitHub a a package called Rebate and Rebate Scikit for the Python version of it that also calculates the relief F score with different variations. Um, as I mentioned, multi-surf. Um, and uh, so he is going to modify his uh, his uh, the calculation in rebate to um, calculate stir as well. Yeah, so it could be, this basically could be uh, adapted, I guess is the word, uh, to many of the ex- existing packages that's out there right now. Right. So you mentioned a lot of uh, future plans. Is this something you plan to continue doing yourself or are you leaving this up for grabs? Um, <laughs> I don't know how much time I have uh, to do this with, uh, you know, many other things that um, I'm, I'm having to, to work out right now. But um, it's definitely up for grabs if anyone's really interested. And, and um, I'm trying to make my, my code and everything um transparent and as available as possible. So STIR is actually on GitHub right now as an R package. And um, yeah, anyone could go in and dig into the algorithm. And um, I welcome any contribution and, and also criticism. <laughs> I'm a mathematician, so I know it's probably not as most elegant as most people would consider. But uh, yeah, so it's it's on there. Okay. And, and so what would the workflow look like like step by step if you are trying to analyze let's say a differential gene expression experiment so uh, let's say you have two conditions some number of samples in each condition and you measure the gene expression for each gene for each condition so you have this huge matrix how do you then uh, apply stir and maybe some downstream analysis what, what would this look like um that's that's a really good question um things gonna be practical so we so if you have let's um, assume you have a gene expression matrix with uh, n number of samples and uh, p number of genes, um, and you have two conditions, which means you have labels for each samples. Then, um, really simple in R, you can load in your data, uh, your data or your, your data frames in this case, um, and you run and you just do stir. And then you feed into the matrix and then you tell them what the labels uh, are. Then uh, what Stir would do is, in the case in a real data set of uh, 5,000 genes, approximately 5,000 genes and, and 200 samples, uh, it takes about 20 seconds to run. And uh, it would give you the genes, well, it would give you the p-values of all the genes, but I think the immediate the output that you would see on your screen is the genes that have p-value less than 0.05 um, that are associated with your label. And so from here, you can test these genes um, on an independent data set that you have, uh, build a model from it, and then uh, see, you know, once again, if you're interested in accuracy, you would want to see uh, how predictive these genes are in classifying these labels. Hopefully it's good. Um, and uh, or you can also build a um, gene co-expression networks out of this, perhaps using the interaction to the score that you have seen um, already, and or perhaps even uh, existing literature. So you can put this in, say, IMP. Um, if you have heard of it, it's a software that Princeton builds uh, for analyzing genes that. You can put in a set of genes and it will give you how these genes interact from um, existing literature. So these p-values that stir outputs, are they already corrected? Yes, these are FDR-corrected p-values, yes. But it also, I think, gives you the raw p-values as well if mm-hmm. you need them. Right, so, so you could use these selected genes for a downstream model, so maybe to build a network or uh, do some other analysis. But um, again, you have to be conscious of this uh, double dip problem, right? Uh, or, or is somehow having those raw p values can this be used to to avoid that problem? I'm, I'm not sure. Right. So that's that's the question. That's up to debate. Um, I think if you're sh- me, uh, I'm interested in finding biomarkers, and so when I'm you know when I have these genes, I often um, just take these and run with it. Um, people obviously want to build model and see, okay, how predictive are these genes? Um, I think 
to be safe um, and uh, like I said earlier, to make reviews happy, um, especially those who are in the field of machine learning, um, they really trying to avoid these this double dipping um, issue, and so they they would try to find an, an independent data set to um, build the model on on just these selected features, uh, and hopefully it becomes it becomes a good model. And so with a feature selection algorithm like relief which is sensitive to feature interactions on the one hand you could expect to recover more features than from an algorithm that doesn't because maybe some uh, you know significance of some gene is masked by its interaction um you could also maybe expect the other way uh, like if the effect of some gene is purely, or, or the difference in the expre- of the expression in some gene is purely due to some other gene. So let's say you have a uh, a gene that ex- that uh, encodes a transcription factor, and that transcription factor activates some other gene. But if it's purely the first gene, which is directly linked to the phenotype, or maybe through through some other genes, but most of the genes are just co-activated by this transcription factor, then uh, would STIR be able to actually not include those spurious genes in the result, do you think? I think STIR would be able to um, detect those pure effects, as you you frame it. Um, And once again, that comes back to the issue of um, how many nearest neighbors, I think, um, you want to include in your algorithm. And what we have found is that STIR um, with multi-serve has been um, working quite well in detecting both main and in a, an interaction effect. And so um, if you compare STIR to, say, a t-test, then I think in, in, in one of the figures in, in the papers, I did show that, of course, it depends on know what p-values you, uh, you use as a cutoff but its precision and recall are, are very similar to a t-test with uh, only med effect um, simulated in the data so is that what you mean by by pure effect no i i meant uh, the case where the main effect is actually a consequence of the interaction effect so a gene has no differential well it is differential expressed between two conditions right but only because of its interaction with some other gene that is sort of genuinely <laughs> differentially oh, expressed, I, but but this I gene, see. like it, it could be used as a marker. I see, but uh, it's only through like a proxy of, of another gene. I see. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yes, that's that's the point of of, of stir. That's what. Um, and in actually in the simulation that we uh, conducted in the paper, um, it's that kind of interaction. So. Um, the simulation was done so that there is, uh, in the case of interaction, there is no main effect. And so all these genes um, are permuted in a way that the main effect is actually the same. But, you know, the effect comes from its interacting with other genes. Yeah, I think that's still not quite what I meant. So what I would like to know is that can STIR actually detect fewer genes instead of more genes? Right, because interaction effects they typically uh, expand your set of interesting genes because genes could be interesting either because they're main effects or interaction effects. But in some cases, you would like to actually shrink your set of interesting genes because if something is interesting only because it's a direct consequence of another gene. Yeah, I, I guess I guess this is this is an interaction effect. It's just uh when you move to causality, right? It's it's caused by another gene, but mm. I suppose that's exactly what you're interested in here. So maybe yeah. I'm not explaining this well. <laughs> um I'm 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 not sure um how how you want to shrink this set of genes. Um but I, I mean if you want to detect genes with just pure in I mean pure main effect then you know I guess you can compute which is I think sort of what we did with um, the the real data simulation but um, so we found 
you know, about 32 genes. So Stir found 32 genes that were um, associated with the uh, disease status in this case, um, major depressive disorder. And uh, but had had we done t tests on the t tests found eight genes uh, mm-hmm. that were uh, associated that were associated with the outcome. And so you can look at the overlap and 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 say, okay, well, I guess these eight genes. The, the, the effect that story detected is probably from main effect. And so the remaining 40, uh, 24 genes, these probably contain um, a lot of interaction. So one word, uh, one interesting word you use in the paper, and, and uh, it's used in, in, in the papers you, you cite as well, is uh, myopic. Could you explain what you mean by uh, myopic in, in the context of um, like feature selection? Yes, so... I didn't come up with this this term, just so you know, but um, it has been used to describe um, in other papers to describe um, the fact that it's yeah as k as the number of nearest papers uh, nearest neighbors increases, um, the algorithms becomes more myopic. So it's it's um, able to detect more main effect. The, the, the way that I think about it, instead of looking at all these interaction and, you know, the genes, all the genes in your data set, you're sort of narrowing down your view uh, between just one gene and its direct connection to the outcome. And so it's becoming more myopic as um, the number of nearest neighbor increases. Right. And so we discussed the, the, the possibility to apply some downstream model uh, after STIR. But you could also just look at the p-values calculated by STIR and uh, and declare some of the genes sort of significant and uh, differentially expressed. So that's very interesting, right? Because usually, like people design this very sophisticated models based on I don't know negative binomial distribution or something, and and some you know generalized linear models, and here. You can produce a p-value just by uh, in in this almost very non-parametric way. Although you, you still you use the t-distribution, uh, a permutation test will, will give you the non-parametric p-value. But still, it's curious how you can use this very I don't know what, what was the right word like very simple approach w- without uh, any complicated statistics and still get like reasonable p-values what, what do you think about this i i think that's exactly why um i want to i want to do something like this um in the sense that um yeah we don't have to write out you know each very particular interaction term um in which case you know it would comes back to the to the issue of um explosion in, in the number of tests um but also, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, but also, you know, do do it in a particularly sufficient manner so that we have, you know, we we don't have to write out all these two way or three way interactions, but can still compute um, by exploiting uh, compute the p value by exploiting the distance matrix. Um, really, I think it all comes down to that. Yeah, to summarize, you know. Basically, I'm just trying to rank the, the importance of each feature separately, um, almost like a univariate method, but it depends on, um, on, on its neighbors, on, on the sample's neighbors. And so it's not quite a univariate method. It's, um, it's multivariate. Um, and yeah, so we almost wanting to find a way to, because like you said, relief is a non-parametric method. Um, to to compute some sort of p values, not retrospectively, it's easy, <laughs> but um, to to get an actual real distribution with some parametric uh, specificities or um, characteristics to it, it's it's not uh, quite so straightforward. But yes, with STIR, you could very efficiently compute the scores along with the p values, and yeah, take that and run. <laughs> Yeah, I think the downside of that is that it's hard to formulate exactly the um, the null hypothesis that, that you're rejecting. That's exactly right. 
Yeah. You could, of course, say that my null hypothesis is that, you know, all, all these like complicated uh, mean differences adjusted and, and, and all that stuff that they are distributed with the same mean. But that's if a biologist looks at that. That's not very useful. It's it's very complicated. On the on the other hand, if you try to uh, distill it to something you know easily digestible, like you say, oh, like my null hypothesis is that these genes uh, either have like main effects or interaction effects, and it's not as obvious to to draw a link between this null hypothesis and, and maybe your test. Right, you're you're correct. Um, I, I think though that you made a very um, Good description of, of uh, the algorithm earlier when you mentioned the inter differences and the inter differences, and so we could um, to explain it uh, to someone who doesn't know much about um, machine learning. Then we, we can describe it in the sense that the, the no hypothesis would be uh, there's no. I'm going to say differences like ten times now, but there's no difference between you know differences among the the interclass differences and the interclass differences. Yeah, and that would be fine, except that ignores the whole nearest neighbor thing, right? So wh- where the interactions actually come in, because if you're just talking about interclass and interclass, then there are no interactions there. And once you get also interactions through these na- nearest neighbors, then it's even more complicated. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, you're completely correct. Yeah, so so we want to, you know, uh, specify that these inter and inter are coming from the the neighborhood that you're uh, you're defining. But uh, yeah, it is it is difficult. I, I have to admit, it is difficult to to interpret these results and try to explain it to someone. But <laughs> I'm hoping that we're gonna get to that point in the future when we can you know say that okay, maybe we don't know exactly um, where the interaction comes from, but perhaps with more experiments and um, analysis, then we can say, okay, I'm, you know, we're pretty sure that these two genes interacting with each other and that affecting. Um, actually, uh, there's this study that I'm trying to write up that looks at Alzheimer diseases and actually including uh, gene expression study, well, results between gene expression studies and also a GWAS study. And we're trying to do some sort of um, we were trying to make the connection between particular genes that people have found, but looking at it in an interaction way. But that, that's slightly different because we have a, a prior knowledge um, per se. You know, we look at these three genes and, you know, some um, SNPs that are associated with these, and this is what we saw in the data. So that's a little bit different than what we're doing now because we don't have any hype, um, prior hypotheses um, for STIR. But uh, perhaps with STIR, you know, it could produce these, dare I say, novel um, interacting genes that may associate with your outcome. Um, And then you can use that. You can further confirm or verify that result in a different data set. And so I think that that would prove uh, valuable. One last thing I want to say is, once again, the the STIR package is online on GitHub. um, And uh, if you're interested, uh, the paper should be out very soon, the journal published paper. And uh, yeah, I welcome any um, contribution um, and any uh, comments that you may have for for the study. Cool. Yeah. And we'll we'll put all the links in the show notes. Trang, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, being part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 